0: Please be aware that True Crime by the Book may discuss topics, share opinions, and use language that could be disturbing or offensive to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Tidings and salutations, bibliophages. Thanks for joining me on True Crime by the Book, where every week we'll discuss a true crime that has been featured in books, documentaries, or biopics. I'm your hostess with the mostest, Tasha Pierce, and today's book is Evidence of Love by John Bloom and Jim Atkinson. Now before we jump into that, I want to thank everyone who has left a review for the podcast, and I'll be giving you all a special shout out at the end of the show. For those of you who haven't gotten around to it, it's never too late. In fact, you can go to Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Facebook, anywhere really and leave a review today. It really helps the show and I can shout you out on a future episode. Now, let's get into evidence of love. In case you haven't read the book and plan to, I'm issuing a spoiler warning. I'll be describing the case and a few listeners thought it would be a good idea if I said spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. With that out of the way, I'll give you some background about the authors courtesy of their author bios. Um, And the authors of this book is John Bloom and Jim Atkinson. So John Bloom is a journalist and entertainer born in Dallas, Texas, and he grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. While serving as a New York bureau chief for United Press International, he was an eyewitness to the events of 9-11 and was nominated by UPI for the Pulitzer Prize. His work for Texas Monthly Magazine has been nominated three times for the National Magazine Award, and he has written for dozens of newspapers and magazines as well as being a columnist for New York Times Syndicate, the Los Angeles Times Syndicate, and Creator Syndicate. He graduated summa cum laude from Vanderbilt University, where he was a Grantland Rice scholar for his work as a teenage reporter and columnist for the Arkansas Democrat. Now, in 1982, he had created a pseudonym of Joe Bob Briggs, and he used that pen name to to remain anonymous until he was outed in 1985. He then started to perform under that name on a number of television shows and at live venues. Now, Jim Atkinson is a contributing editor for Texas Monthly, and he's been working as a journalist in Texas for over 40 years. He was a courthouse reporter for the Dallas Times-Herald and a political correspondent for Dallas KERA-TV, Channel 13, during the 70s. In 1974, he helped, he helped to found D Magazine, the city magazine of Dallas, and worked there for seven years as an editor and writer. So very, very experienced writers that we had, and they were also experienced reporters. And they give this story in almost like a reporter's point of view. Uh, the description of the book goes like this. It was an Edgar Award finalist the sensational true story of two desperate housewives and the killing that shocked a Texas community. Candy Montgomery and Betty Gore had a lot in common. They sang together in the Methodist church choir, their daughters were best friends, and their husbands had good jobs working for technology companies in the North Dallas suburbs known as Silicon Prairie. But beneath the placid surface of their seemingly perfect lives, Both women simmered with unspoken frustrations and unanswered desires. On a hot summer day in 1980, the secret passions and jealousies that linked Candy and Betty exploded into murderous rage. What happened next is usually the stuff of fiction, but the bizarre and terrible act of violence that occurred in Betty's utility room that morning was all too real. This is based on exclusive interviews with the Montgomery and Gore families, um, and Evidence of Love is the riveting account of a gruesome tragedy and the trial that made national headlines. Adapted into the Emmy and Golden Globe Award winning television movie, A Killing in a Small Town, this chilling tale of sin and savagery will fascinate true crime aficionados. And that was that for the uh, jacket description. And well, in June of 1980, I was a snot-nosed seven-year-old. So this was a brand new case for me. I listened to the audiobook, which was 12 and a half hours in length. It was narrated by Charles Constant, who did an awesome job. His cadence was just right. and He didn't miss a beat when voicing the different characters. So I was able to simply listening without the fingernails on a chalkboard cringiness that I sometimes experience when narrators decide to have it up on the voice acting. Now, if you were around in 1980, you know, it is a much simpler time. If you weren't, you're going to learn today. On the radio, we heard Hall and Oates, Pat Benatar, Cool in the Gang, the police, and of course, the boss. Bruce Springsteen, it wasn't none of that walking around with headphones shit, we all listen to the same music, <laughs> all of us, black people, white me- people, everybody in between, we all listen to the same shit, and then on TV, it was the Jeffersons, Magnum P.I., the Dukes of Hazard, and of course, Dallas, who shot J.R. was the question on the minds of right around 83 million people that year, But in one Dallas suburb, the question was, who butchered Betty Gore? Now, I can vividly remember in 1980 when two movies that defined a genre debuted on the big screen. Friday the 13th and The Shining. I'm not certain how. Possibly a double feature at a drive-in or something. But sweet little innocent Tasha saw both of these movies. I also saw the Empire Strikes Back that same year. Understand kids, this was a hell of a time to be alive. All of these movies came out in 1980, but I digress. These movies do show up again in the book and they provide a backdrop to what occurs later in the story. Now the Gore family lived in Wiley, Texas, which I already mentioned was a suburb of Dallas. The family included Alan and Betty with their two daughters. They were a typical family of the era. Uh, Dad worked in tech, mom was a teacher, and the children were happy and well-adjusted. They were also active members of Lucas Methodist Church, like many of the families in the community. Now This was summer in Wiley, and the church hosted a vacation Bible school to give the kids something to do. Now, Betty was off for the summer like all the children, so she sent her older daughter, aged five, to Bible school with the rest of the kids while she stayed home with her infant. And all was okay. Her daughter would be well looked after by her best friend's mother and Sunday school teacher, Candy Montgomery. In fact, her daughter would be spending the night at the Montgomery's home. Candy Montgomery was married to Pat Montgomery and they also had two children. Pat also worked in tech. He worked at Texas Instruments and Candy was a stay-at-home mom. So she filled her days with church, housework, and running the children to practices and appointments and that sort of thing, playdates. Now, as a young woman, this was the life that she imagined for herself. But now that she had this life. She was, in a word, she was bored. She had a very vanilla life. She wanted sprinkles. So she engaged in some extramarital foolery for some time prior to this day, which was June 13th, 1980. You know, a sprinkle here and a sprinkle there. Pat found out about one of her sprinkles. And with the help of the church, they were recommitted to their marriage. Now, today, Candy was teaching at Bible school. It was then that she realized that Betty's daughter needed a swimsuit for swim practice later. Now, after she taught her class, she decided she would run to the Gore home and pick it up. Because she also needed to grab a Father's Day card for her husband, so she planned to stop at Target as well. I didn't know Target was a thing in 1980. We didn't have one near me, and I doubt my mom would have shopped there because... Hell, there was four of us kids, and Target really isn't the cheapest store in the world. Well, maybe it was in 1980, but I—I I, again, I digress. Candy gets to the gore home, and she and Betty begin to chat it up. Just regular shit about the kids until Betty asks Candy if she's sleeping with her husband. So yeah, <laughs> Candy got bored in her marriage, so she decided to have an affair. Now she realized while playing volleyball with Alan in the Church League that she wanted to sleep with him. So she approached Alan Gore and asked him if he'd like to have an affair. Now but Alan, Alan was fighting the good fight. He loved Betty and he didn't want to hurt her, so he turned Candy's offer down. And she was just like, okay, like maybe a little disappointed, but it wasn't the end of the world. Myself, I would have been mortified if I just placed my putnani on a silver platter and got turned down. But Candy was just like, oh, on to the next. Now, I'm sure you know that there wouldn't be a 12-hour book if that was that. Eventually, Alan gave it some more thought and made the decision that he indeed wanted to bang Candy with no strings attached. And what followed was a very vanilla affair. Vanilla, vanilla, vanilla. (laughs) They telegraphed everything like every aspect was planned. They'd meet up at a shitty hotel while Alan was on his lunch break. She would pack a picnic style lunch for them and they would vanilla fuck. (laughs) Now they did this on certain vanilla ass days and then played coy when they were all at church. Wasn't long before Candy got bored of this shit too and was on to the next. But now, months later, here's Betty asking about her affair with her husband. And this is even after Candy's husband had already found out. So yeah, Pat knew. And that's why he and Candy went to a retreat that the church sponsored in order to reconnect. Now, Alan and Betty went to the same retreat to strengthen their union. And Alan had stayed away from Candy ever since. But here the affair was rearing its ugly head again candy had no choice but to tell betty the truth yes she has slept with her husband multiple times but it's okay because she didn't want him anymore now i don't know if candy thought she was being diplomatic with her choice of words it's like i slept with him but i don't want him anymore that almost implies that if i did want him i would have him in fact The only reason he's with you is because I don't want him. Now, that's what I got out of what she said. And I'm sure that based on what happened next, Betty felt that way, too. In fact, we'll discuss what happened next right after a word from a podcast that I think you all will love. It's not true crime. It follows law enforcement and military topics, however. So I'm very happy to introduce you to Ruck Up Podcast. At Ruck Up Podcast, we take a little bit of a different approach. We take industry professionals from law enforcement, military, security, and outdoors enthusiasts from all around the world. And we hear their story. So let's hear it. Attack or infiltration or suspected infiltration, and we have to be ready to. Uh, we all re- allegedly massacred by the, the Crown Prince, and I was there not to do with that. And I arrived in the day after. Check us out at our website at ruckupmedia.com. So, when we left off, Candy had just admitted to her and Alan's affair in the most gangster way possible. And Betty was like, oh, is that right? She then went to get the swimsuit that Candy had come for. and according, This is all according to Candy. Then she came back with an axe. Now, the book made it very clear that Betty had a size advantage over Candy. Now she had a weapon. It sounds like she kind of threatened Candy with it, saying, you can't have him. Now, Candy keeps reiterating that she didn't want him, which still sounds oh so fucked up to me. Then she apologized like, I don't want him. I'm sorry. (laughs) She says at this point, Betty came at her with the axe. They roughed around for a little while, wrestling over this axe. The fight was kind of prolonged with Betty wildly swinging and Candy evading and trying to talk her down. Then at some point in this confrontation, Betty says, shh, because her baby was asleep. Well, what does she do that for? For some reason, this triggered a full-on rage from Candy. She and Betty again went at it over the axe and somehow Candy ended up with it. At this point, she began to hack at Betty. She connected over 40 times bludgeoning this woman who was once her friend to death. Then in some movie type shit, she went in the bathroom and took a shower. This bitch is truly gangster. Then she grabbed the swimsuit, went home and changed clothes, then went back to the church to get the kids, including Betty's daughter. And this is probably the most sickening part to me. Well, besides the fact that she left the the sleeping baby in the house while Betty lay lifeless on the floor and the book just dives into so much like the primitive primitive by our terms investigation the fact that the newspaper at Betty's house was open to a page that featured Jack Nicholson's iconic shot from The Shining. You know the picture him standing behind a hacked up door with an axe. And this murder occurred one month after Friday the 13th debuted in theaters on Friday the 13th. There were just so many coincidences and idiosyncrasies that led the police and the public to believe there was a psychotic axe killer on the loose who was emboldened by the latest entries into the horror genre. They refused to believe anything but a man would be strong enough to commit the crime because Well, it was a simpler time. Women were thought of as the weaker sex. The patriarchy was real. (laughs) Nowadays, we see 82-year-old women beating the stuffing out of would-be robbers. That thought was inconceivable in the quote-unquote good old days. In fact, it would be three weeks before the authorities accepted that their best suspect after the husband was Candy Montgomery. Now, as for ha- Alan, he was out of town for work uh, when the confrontation took place. In fact, he had continuously called his wife on the house phone because that's all we had in the 80s. No cell phones. <laughs> he repeatedly called his wife on the house phone because she, she couldn't get in contact with her. Betty had been rather upset that he had to leave. So he called a neighbor to go check on her, make sure everything was OK. The neighbor stumbled upon this horrific mess and called the police. The baby was crying and hungry, which this part really, truly broke my heart. Crying, hungry, sitting in a dirty diaper, um, and had no one gone to check on the house. That baby may have been a second victim to this terrible crime. So, long story short, Candy was finally caught, and she admitted to killing Betty in self-defense now this made for a sensational trial there was so many things uncovered about candy's early life and it was also revealed that betty wasn't a very sympathetic victim candy also was forced to admit to another affair which really hurt her husband but the defense self-defense just seemed like boat like boating without a paddle I could understand if the attack ended with one swing of the axe. But once we get to 10, 20, 40 swings, that's overkill. Crazily, more bizarre than anything else. The jury deliberated for three hours and returned a not guilty verdict. So that was it. Candy was free to go with her family and husband's support. Of course, she ended up moving and changing her name And Alan Gore wasted no time in remarrying. See, that was the thing for widowers to do back then. Except for in 85, when my mom passed, my dad became a playboy. But you didn't ask about that, did you? (laughs) But this story, really, it really made me sad. Like, really, really sad. Because Betty was a little insecure, and she had fucked up in the past and had presently rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. But does she deserve to go out like that? Now, I think she may have pulled the axe to intimidate Candy, especially since the newspaper showed a picture of Jack Nicholson holding an axe. She probably had just read that in the newspaper. And when Candy came in talking shit, she decided to scare her a little bit. Now, if you're standing in your house with a goddamn axe, I'm getting the fuck out of your house. That's my first instinct. My first instinct would be to run. The facts are that Candy was the smaller woman. Betty had a weapon. And she felt like she had something to fight for. So after who shot JR And who killed Betty Gore. The biggest unanswered question is. Why didn't Candy run? We only have her version of events to go by. Also. Once Betty was incapacitated incapacitated with one or two ax blows why did she why did she continue hitting her and then why did she cover the whole crime up the shower changing clothes lying low for three weeks if it was self-defense why not tell your husband your pastor the law anybody so they could at least tend to that child that was left in the home Now you absolutely have to read this book because I definitely only glossed over the details. It was really a sensational story. You may read this and come out on the other side, but I definitely think that Candy should have been found guilty of something. Even if it was just endangering her child. She was wrong and her decisions led to a whole world of hurt. Not letting Alan off the hook, he was a grown-up, and he did what he did too, but really, all of these decisions that were made by Candy really, really led to a world of hurt. Uh, those babies lost their mother. Alan lost his wife. Pat Montgomery was destroyed when he found out that his that his wife Candy had had more than one affair. Um, Candy's children live with the stigma of having quote unquote that mom just all kinds of fucked up and as promised now that I'm through rambling on about the story and telling you exactly how I feel about it it is a good read I do recommend it and now I'm going to read out the names of the bookworms who left reviews but before that Make sure to check out the show notes so you'll see my sources and all the places you can find me. I'm rolling out the red carpet for someone to become my first Patreon supporter. Two bucks a month will get you a shout out and you will be a distinguished listener. Plus, I'll be putting out some bomb bonus shit if you decide I'm worth five bucks. With all that being said, here are my five star reviewers. Alright. My first 5 star reviewer. In fact, I'm just going to list them all. Skywalker 0429 Disappointed 0990 Gold Block Careers Podcast Uh, Sheep on Stilts SPF Yourself Mama Never Told Us is one of my pod friends as well. Listen to their stuff. Uh, Eric Landine Carter, one of my pod friends. Thank you very much guys. Mad Madam Melzi, KT and OT are pod friends from For Your Reference Podcast, and Atlantis LVT. Thank you, all of you, for leaving a five-star review. Um, Everybody else, what are you waiting for? Rate and or review the show today. Now, I'm going to go in the book bag now and share the next title with you, because guess what? I'm prepared. In 2020, that is one of my things. I'm going to be far more prepared. So, Fatal Charm, The Shocking True Story of Serial Wife Killer Randy Roth by Carlton Smith, is our next read. Thanks for hanging out with me today. See you back here in the library next week for Fatal Charm. Later, bookworms.